Hello, everyone. Welcome to the seventh episode of Weaving Myths. Weaving Myths is a podcast focused on tabletop role-playing games and specifically playing them through the play-by-post format. I'm your host, Nathan, and joining me today are Colin. Hello, everyone. And Ruben. Good afternoon. We are all moderators or administrators on Mythweavers, a play-by-post gaming website, and we're all here to help bring your game to the next level. If you're not familiar with Mythweavers, you can find it at myth-weavers.com. As always, we are joined by the impeccable text chat, which members of Mythweavers are using right now to ask questions and contribute to the discussion. Today on the agenda, we have Niche Games, the first Weaving Myths grab bag, and part four of our player archetype series, all of which we'll be talking about over the next hour or hour and a half or so. At the end, we'll open the floor to a live Q&A session from the text chat where anyone can ask us anything, be it about Mythweavers, gaming, or anything else they want to know. So, without any further ado, let's jump right in. The first topic on the agenda is niche games. So, gentlemen, tell me what is a niche game? Alright, a niche game is the game that either a lot of people don't know about, a game that is rarely used, or a game that really only appeals to a certain audience. Some might be a niche games because the mechanics are really unknown, or they might be a niche game because they're using a setting that not everybody knows or not a lot of people are into. I believe that summarizes it quite nicely. I've got nothing to add on that. <laughs> Alrighty. So, niche games, they pop up every now and then on Mythweavers. They're pretty rare. I would say once in a blue moon, almost. So... The number one thing I think is you want to, well, when you're trying to run a niche game, then you have to bring people in because not a lot of people have seen it before. So we've talked about your advertisement a little bit in episode one, but what are some things you can do specifically for a niche game that makes it stand out and can help bring new players into the fold? Well, I think one of the main things is if there is a free version of the rule set. It's always hard to sell players on, hey, try this really unknown game system if they have to go out and buy something in order to be able to play it. Uh, Or if you do have to buy it, I've found I had a lot more success if I'm asking people to spend five or fewer dollars. So providing a link to where you can buy it cheaply and legally also helps, although Colin's right, and I think free is definitely better. Definitely. So systems like the window or fate where, well, fate isn't really a niche game system, but as an example, their rules are available freely online. They can definitely bring in your, bring in new players more easily than having to go out and buy a 40 or $50 rule book. Yeah. I mean, for the most part, you just have to remember that you're really going to have to sell this game a lot more than you would the, with something like Dungeons and Dragons. So, yeah, you need a really, really good ad. It's probably going to help if you have really good images, if it's really concise and easy to read, and you have really clear pointers to where the rules are and what the system is. I think layout is everything in the ad, too. You know, you need the pictures, you need the good descriptions, but like Ruben said, concise, but also break it up visually so that it's easy to actually read in chunks. And if you can't sell it, in under three paragraphs, you're probably just not going to sell it at all. I forget who said it originally, but a famous author once said that I didn't have the time to write you a short letter, so I wrote you a long one instead. So 
taking that extra time to make sure that you can sum it up very briefly. And when we say sum it up, we mean you want to explain what the system is, what the style and feel of the game is, and where it's being, like, what it's set in very clearly. And you don't want to spend, you don't want people to have a textbook to read to be able to even apply for certain games. The, uh, you also just need to be really, really enthusiastic about this game. I mean, presumably, if you're trying to run a niche game, it's because you really, really love it, and you need to share that enthusiasm and make sure it is very, very obvious. If you're excited about it, chances are your excitement is going to rub off, and that will get you more people getting interested in the system. So another tip I'll throw out there is you want to kind of ease people into it, So some systems can be extremely crunchy, meaning they need a lot of rules to do anything. So you want to kind of throw them at them, throw the rules at people slowly. So you don't want to immediately jump in and say, oh, no, the rules say this, 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 and this. Rather, you want to kind of let mistakes slide a little bit because people are still learning the system. I mean, nobody makes a perfect character on the first first go around or... No one can pick up a system after just five minutes of looking at it. So you have to kind of ease them in to the system rather than throw everything at them all at once. Well, and a good way to kind of do that is try to focus your first few encounters on one mechanic at a time. Uh, Ideally, you want to start with the simplest mechanics and then kind of work up, especially if the system is kind of unified. So you can use the simple mechanics to teach the more complex ones. So I remember when I first started learning to play Dungeons and Dragons, and this isn't a niche system by any means, but when I first started to play, I remember the two-hit AC0 system being extremely complex, and I couldn't wrap my head around it until my DM explained it to me. So don't be surprised if you're going, if you have to go that extra step to explain complicated rule sets to your players, especially since they're brand new. So they don't know the system nearly as well as you might. Thacko is wacko if you're a team. (laughs) So another thing that you want to do is make sure that you're leading by example. So this kind of goes back to what I was just talking about with having having to explain things to your players. But you also want to make sure that your players understand everything that's happening to them. So if you have an obstacle or an antagonist, you want to clearly lay out all of the roles and mechanics that they're using so that the players can see, okay, so this is how we're going to interact with conflict. And if they do this, then hopefully they'll draw the connection that I can do other things. And that's gradually something you can ease up on as players get more familiar, but uh, I've actually set up encounters to showcase as many different rules as I can the first few times. And if you do it openly enough, it kind of gives players a really good example to refer to. Tiffany Corda also mentions that sometimes you have to prepare for failure. Um, and this is unfortunate, but true, that sometimes even if you have the best way of explaining things, the best advertisement, the best pictures the best enthusiasm. Sometimes games just don't pick up like you were hoping they would. And I actually had this happen to me recently with a fate game where 
I was prepared, completely prepared for the game, but I didn't get enough interest in the game because the setting I was using was too specific and only people who knew the setting would really be interested in it. And even if I did the best possible job of explaining it, it still wasn't enough for people to really understand what was going on in the game without that reference material. And even if you do fail, it's not a complete failure if you've sold at least one other person on your game. Keep an eye on who was really excited about it, maybe make them friends on Mythweavers, and when you try again, try and get their help to sell this system. Another thing to keep in mind, too, is when you put up your ad. We've talked in the past, I believe it was episode two, that Mythweavers game ads sometimes run in cycles. It depends what day of the week you start things. It depends on whether there have been a flurry of game advertisements or whether there's been a lack lately. And it's something you might be able to, if you don't get a huge bite the first time you make an ad, give it a month and try again. There's nothing wrong with resubmitting a game ad to try and get people again. Which a good point is, always save all your ads and all your game material. You might be able to reuse it later. Absolutely. Mythweavers has the archive function, which makes that extremely easy to do. So it's really, you have to very intentionally remove something for you to lose it. Well, and game ads tie back to the game they're advertised for. You can find them on the game profile page. So another point I want to make is that you should always be prepared to answer questions. And going back to my earlier example of learning D&D 2nd Edition, I didn't understand 100% how the system worked. So it was I had to go to my DM and ask them several questions to understand how everything worked together. And that's totally fine. People who are new to the system are going to have a lot of questions. And if you can, you should try to kind of anticipate those questions and create like an FAQ that you can use to answer the most commonly asked questions. And the easiest way I think to do that is to think of the questions you had when you first started looking at the system and compile those into an FAQ. And keep in mind, an FAQ is a living document. It's not something you set up and then forget about. It's just every time a new question comes up, you add it to the FAQ and make sure it keeps getting updated. In fact, I'd probably stick it in your forum so it's easy to find. I would also link it in your advertisement page. A super helpful way to answer questions is through a live format of some kind. So I might be going back a little far for today's day and age, but AIM, MSN Messenger, Skype, Discord, all of these things can be used to get in touch with you immediately so you can answer questions quickly. Chimi says, calm down, Grandpa, and to that I say, hey, back in my day, AIM was where you went if you wanted to instant message somebody. Ah, good old AIM. (laughs) Well, it was better than Usenet. Okay, let's stop dating ourselves. (laughs) Get off my lawn. Chat is now blowing up with people saying ICQ for the win. And I never used ICQ, but I assume it's one of those ancient dinosaurs of instant messaging. I think it came out right around the same time as like Kazam. No, Kazaa. 
the fastest way to get a computer virus. <laughs> oh, yeah. Crap, where were we? I have it highlighted. Speaking of Google Docs and how useful they can be. So when you do answer your questions for the FAQ, try to answer them with examples if you can. People tend to learn better if they have an actual example of what you're talking about. That's why a lot of rule books have so many different examples in them. Especially in the character creation process, I've noticed that even, well, the most recent system I've created a character for was Shadowrun Anarchy. And that one had examples of, so this player wants to do this, so he puts points in XYZ things. And using examples like that are a good way to get your players to say, oh, I want to do blank, I need to do blank, blank, blank. And I've also been referring to other players in that game to other applicants who have done something they're looking to do already. Which means I think any system you're trying to use as niche, if it has a lot of pre-generated PCs, that's going to be really helpful, especially if they're pre-generated PCs that you can post for free. That can really sell a game super well. A lot of those systems I've noticed have a, a very quick and easy way to come up with bare-bones characters that generally are supposed to be used as NPCs, but they can be adapted into player characters. And those very quick and easy ways to generate characters can make things a lot easier. I mean, to take Anarchy as an example, there's a good, what is it, two dozen characters in the book, and a couple of them really got me excited about the game just by reading those example characters. As long as you don't look too closely at the mistakes. <laughs> All right, yeah, you do the really good editing pass. All right, before we move on to the next topic, do we have some systems that we would like to throw out there as niche that we consider not very popular? I would say the only truly niche system I've got is new, and it's Planet Mercenary. It's a RPG built off of the Schlock Mercenary webcomic, and it's as fantastic as the webcomic. That's cool. What's the system like? Generally pretty rules light. It's got some interesting ways to make combat a little wild. The players all take the role of an officer in a mercenary company. But what's really interesting is there is no initiative order. So the rules quite literally say the rules for turn order and combat are they who speak first go first. That's cool. And I've got a couple I really like, too. Uh, one is Marvel Heroic Roleplaying, which sadly is no longer available, so it's kind of really niche and limited to the people who actually got the books before it went under. But it was a really, really great super system, and I loved their initiative turn order, which was the person who goes gets to name who goes next, and that includes the game master. And the person who goes last in the round gets to name who goes first in the round, too. So if you keep letting the Game Master go last, he then gets to go first in the next round and gets two turns back-to-back. I also really like uh, Blades in the Dark, which is a new game that kind of started with the Apocalypse World engine, but now uses more kind of a D6 dice pool system. But it's like you run a criminal crew in this weird, dark fantasy London that's protected by lightning barriers powered by demon blood. It's kind of like... From Hell and Leverage, only not good guy Leverage, like, had a baby. It's super fun. Interesting. And the ones I had come up with were Leverage, which 
as far as I'm aware, only Ruben and I have ever actually run a leverage game on Mythweavers. I'm, I'm sure someone will correct me on that, but to my knowledge, we're the only ones that have done it. And then the window, which pops up every now and then, but is extremely rules light and very heavily focused on narration. And the most successful window games I've seen have been focused on like psychological horror. So it has a sanity system and a fear system and all of those things built into it. And it works really well for those types of things. It's like a, I guess I could describe it as like a rules light Call of Cthulhu or Arkham Horror. Oh, another one of my favorites is Wild Talents, which uses the one roll engine. It's superheroes that's really interesting. All right, and a couple that people are mentioning from chat, uh, Burning Wheel, HOL, I'm not sure what that is, but HOL, Deadlands, Continuum, Hillfolk, Nightlife and Nephilim. See, I don't know how niche Deadlands is, because Deadlands Reloaded is one of uh, Pinnacle's like flagship products. It's awesome, but I don't know how niche it is. Chat is telling me that HOL is Human Occupied Landfill, which... I know absolutely nothing about. That sounds new to me. Sounds like a low-rent paranoia. All right, well, Tiffany Corda says that is White Wolf trying to be edgy. All righty. God, now I'm reminded of Black Dog Studios. (laughs) All right, any final thoughts before we move on to our next topic? Someone should totally run a leverage game. You have at least two players here. I I would be down for that. Oh, we got three with Kimmy. All right. Our next topic is the very first Weaving Myths grab bag. As part of the grab bag, we're going to be very briefly covering a couple of ideas taken from threads on Mythweavers. Specifically, we've pulled these topics from the gaming discussion and GM discussion forums. So for our very first grab bag topic, we're going to have three this evening. Uh, Our very first grab bag topic is Pulling the Plug by Jacob Lewis. And very briefly, have we ever run into the quote-unquote edition treadmill, as Jacob Lewis puts it, and what did we do about it? Basically, have you ever bought a book for a new system or edition and realized you didn't like it, and is there any way to combat that? Personally, I sell it back uh, through Amazon. You take a little bit of a loss, but someone that might enjoy the system can get it that way and you get most of your money back. And if you can't sell it, look at trading it with somebody else who has books you do want. So I know there's a lot of websites out there where you can put things up for trade. Um, I don't know how well suited for it Craigslist is, but that might work. Or eBay is also another option if you're trying to sell it. I mean, Reddit has trading threads all the time for basically anything you can imagine. Uh, RPG that also has a dedicated thread for trading things. And you can kind of avoid getting into the kind of edition treadmill by just not buying into the new edition right away and immediately. Wait a little bit, read some reviews, talk to other people who have got it, And ideally, try and play a game with a new edition before you buy into it yourself. That way you can kind of try before you buy. Or if you can find a digital copy, usually digital copies are a lot cheaper than actual physical copies. So you can purchase those, see if you like it, and then purchase the physical copy if you decide you want to do that. 
quick starts are good for that too. They'll usually give you a good idea of what's new without paying anything. So I don't think I've ever actually run into the edition treadmill except for once, which was with Iron Kingdoms. The original Iron Kingdoms, which was designed for use with 3.5, was fantastic. But the new version that's based off of the Warhammer, or not Warhammer, War Machine War game kind of fell flat for me. But the lore book that they released, I found could be very useful for moving the 3.5 version into a more quote-unquote modern era. So even those books are not completely useless, especially if they can be used with older versions of systems. I kind of ran into the opposite thing with Shadowrun 5th Edition, where I found a couple of mechanical bits I really liked, but I didn't like the direction the metagame was going in. So I pulled some of the mechanical ideas back into 4th Edition. Like the use of cyberdex, I thought was really cool. I liked that adepts got powers for their mentor spirits, just like magicians. So I also backported that. And the big thing is, if you're on the edition treadmill, presumably you're on it because you already like the edition you're playing. So there's really no reason to jump to the new shiny if you still like the thing you're playing, right? Absolutely. There's nothing wrong with waiting to see what other people say first. Absolutely. Um, my play group, my real life play group was obsessed with Pathfinder at the time fourth edition came out. So we were very heavily invested in Pathfinder. So we didn't really get into fourth edition as a result. And I was actually luckily able to preview a lot of the fourth edition stuff at conventions. So I could report back to my group and tell them, hey, this new edition is really cool because I've already tried it. Which is a good point. Game conventions, often a really good chance to try out the new Shinies before they actually hit shelves or without buying them. And a lot of times conventions will have quick start rules or other little handouts that give you a taste of the new edition without having to buy it. Conventions are also a really good place to find niche systems where people are trying to get their new game system up off the ground and you you can often take sit down and play it for a little while just to see what it's like as a sample because they're trying to get people interested and the best way to get people interested is to have them actually use it all right and our next grab bag topic is when you get stuck by the root so briefly What do you do when you have things planned out, your players are rolling along at a good pace, and all of a sudden you hit writer's block or a lack of motivation? All right. The first thing to do is to just kind of break away because sitting there and staring at the monitor is not going to do any good. So (laughs) sit back, kind of go and try and catch some other media or read a book or go for a walk. Just break out of your normal mold and try and kick something loose by changing your circumstances. So as someone who has both written and self-published a book, I am very familiar with writer's block, and it's not a fun thing to be going through. But the most important thing to do on Mythweavers especially is to make sure you communicate to your players that you're having trouble. So at least let them know that you're having trouble before you decide to take a hiatus from the site or anything like that. But when I experience writer's block, the best thing I've found to do is just ignore what you're trying to write 
and do something else, whether it's go to a new restaurant, rearranging your workspace, like I even something as simple as changing the background for your computer's monitor can be that little push you need and that change of environment to kind of get you over that hump. Because doing the same thing over and over and over gets you into a slump. And the only way to break out of that is to do something completely different. My favorite thing is to take a walk around the block. I usually like to, you know, watch something unrelated as well and usually crack open a beer, drink some wine, or have some bourbon, something to get the uh, creative juices flowing again. As Mick the Rogue very aptly puts it, you can't have new ideas without something new to think about. So if you're stuck trying to be creative... That means your creativity is kind of exhausted, and you need to refill that reservoir, I guess. I like watching media that is off-genre to what I'm stuck on. So if I'm stuck on fantasy, I watch sci-fi. If I'm stuck on Victorian times, I'll watch a modern drama. For some reason, that seems to kick loose ideas for me. Ooh, and documentaries are always good. Like, if I'm really stuck, I'll just watch a nature documentary. And Tiffany Corda mentioned that communicating with your players is essential. And we kind of very briefly mentioned this earlier, but you definitely want to make sure that everyone knows kind of what's going on. So Mythweavers, especially if you don't tell people what's happening, they don't know. So you have to do something, whether it's sending them a private message or making an announcement in your game forum, or really just some form of saying, Hey, I need a little bit of time Give me a couple days, and I'll come back to it, and we'll be good to go. And when you do that, it doesn't uh, hurt to ask your players, what do you think should happen here? You know, get your players' input. Mr. Andrew J. mentions that he uses his forum signature for his availability status, and that is a good way to do it, assuming people look at your signature. So I'm not sure how frequently people look at the signature's on a post. Well, and honestly, I skim over them. But I do the same thing and then forget to update it. Oh, yeah, Mick the Rogue brings up that a lot of people don't even look for changes in signatures. You tend to read them once and then skip over them. All right, and our third and final grab bag topic for the evening is How Do I Deal with Sandboxes and Time by Silent Shade? So how do you handle the potential time differences between player actions? So as an example, let's say player A is doing something that takes a few hours, but could affect player B, whose actions may only take a few minutes. So how do you reconcile the time difference that certain events and actions can take? Man, I don't know if I've run into this very often, but your first option is to stall the quicker player throw up another thing they can do that's going to take roughly the same amount of time as the slow player and kind of hope you can kind of finesse the time difference a bit more. So this isn't really a sandbox system, but the leverage system has a way for, at the end of every job, each player can go back and create a flashback, which changes what happened retroactively. So once everybody knows everything that happens, then they can go back and make changes. So like 
I'm trying to think of a good example off the top of my head. Maybe Ruben can help me out here. All right. Uh, player A is trying to pick a lock. That doesn't take very long. But player B is trying to con the guard into giving player A the key. So what we do is we go forward with player B, but we have player A keep picking the lock. But when player B succeeds, then we just have player A do a flashback after he fails to pick the lock saying, oh, yeah, player B passed me the key earlier, so it doesn't matter. Very good example. Thank you. So, Colin, I know you're a fan of sandbox games. Have you ever run into a situation where multiple players have different timetables and can affect one another? Many times, and I typically go with the stall route. Usually, I'll try to keep it subtle, of course, but, you know, if it's a simple option, kind of make things a little more complex so it takes them longer to get through something. The other option is the faster player put up another additional roadblock after they finish the first one. So you pretty much tack on the stall after the first roll. Honestly, I think it's better to try and plan to avoid these situations rather than try to fix them. I mean, they're totally going to come up no matter what you do, but try and avoid them in the first place is the easiest thing to do. All right, and before we move on to the next topic for the evening, I just want to very briefly mention that we will probably be doing another grab bag, not the next episode, but maybe in a couple episodes. So if you have, if you see a thread on Mythweavers pop up in either gaming discussion or GM discussion that you would like us to talk about, please feel free to post it in the Weaving Myths thread, and we will take a look at it and potentially discuss it on the show. And our next topic for the evening is part four of our player archetype series, and this time we're going to be talking about the class clown, or sometimes called the kender. So what is the kender? All right. The class clown or kender is the guy who does, or girl, who does wacky, unexpected, or silly things. They're the ones who like to derail the game by saying, I'm going to steal the farmer's cow and put it in a beauty pageant just the ones who tend to completely derail games by doing the weirdest kind of stuff they can think of. Also known as the loony or the fishmouth. So one way I've noticed on kind of how to handle this type of person is you can reward them for taking things more seriously, or you can punish them for taking things too far. Um, in the first case of rewarding them, you want to make sure that the reward is substantial enough that they go, oh, hey, if I do that again, then I'll probably get another reward that'll help me out. Whereas punishments, you kind of want to start more gently, and you don't want to immediately hand out a punishment that's like, oh, your character dies. But you can't make it too slight either. And you have to be really, really obvious about why you're rewarding are penalizing that behavior. Make sure that the parallel is super easy to draw. And one thing I've noticed is sometimes these players are acting out like this because they don't feel like they're getting enough attention or they feel like they're being ignored. So it can also help to maybe focus on their character a little bit more and kind of try to give them options to do something a bit more serious. I personally tend to... I wouldn't necessarily say it's choosing the stick over the carrot, but I like to have the world react to what they did in a way that would be appropriate. 
and quite often that can be bad for the player. Sure, you don't want your if you if you choose to do the go the punishment route, you don't want to do something that would be out of character for the setting. So, like that farmer, his poor cow, um, might organize the or go to the town council, and the town council would send the guards after the player and say, "What are you doing stealing this guy's cow?" Yeah. Well, and the other thing you do too is have the rest of the party pitch into this. Chances are, if this player is acting out like that, the rest of your party is probably really not happy about it. So, kind of have the other players help police this other player. Uh, and if you can, well, usually you're going to have one player kind of step up to the party leader, maybe take that party leader aside and tell him, hey, this guy's a problem, can you help me police him? And you kind of want to pick someone... Well, you don't necessarily want to pick someone, but you want to ask the party to kind of appoint a leader of some kind so that everybody agrees on who is doing the policing. You don't just want to pick a random person and say, hey, you're in charge now. Yeah, never take away player agency over this. Another thing you can do is try to give them outlet for the seriousness. So you can try and set up points of levity where the clown can actually be funny and it actually fits into the game. Uh, you have to be really obvious about when these points are and kind of give the player a chance to get it out of their system so that when you move on to the other serious points, maybe they're more likely to be serious because they got to, you know, get their yuck yuck yucks in earlier. Sure, there's a moment. There's always a moment where everybody's going to stop and joke around and... In my real life game, I've had several moments where someone has said something and I have had to stop and put my head on the table because I was laughing so hard. So there is a time and place for everybody or for everything. And also, you know, not all players are good for all games. Um, if you're planning on running a more serious game, maybe don't, you know, grab the person that seems like they're going to want to have some funny haha moments. They might not fit in well, but. You can also run a less serious game. That less serious game might be the perfect setting to get someone like that in. So on Mythweavers, that kind of translates to, have you played with this person before and do you know their play style? And sometimes when you're going to pick players, that can factor in. And if you know that this is a really serious like psychological horror game, the this type of player probably wouldn't fit in very well. So one thing you can do that's pretty cool on the site is if you click on a player's profile, you can see their past games, and you actually go through and see how they posted in other games to kind of maybe get an idea of their style. And to briefly recap previous advice we've given, checking the game history of a player when you try to decide whether to have them in your game or not can be very beneficial, even if you're not trying to identify a particular player archetype. So Mick the Rogue points out that it's good to be clear about in-character versus out-of-character. So on Mythweavers, this is super easy to do, but out-of-character, you can definitely joke around and have fun and banter with your fellow players and, and generally have a good time with them. But in-character, you want to make sure that you stay serious, or at least as serious as the game requires. So if your character is a sarcastic person then they can throw out the occasional sarcastic quip if it's in character. All right, any other thoughts before we move on to the game of the week? I think I'm good. Let's do it. All right, 
This week's Game of the Week is Fate Extra, a lunatics game being run by Kinsei. Fate Extra was originally a PlayStation Portable video game that Kinsei has adapted for use with a modified version of Dresden Files, known as Dresden Files Accelerated Edition. As a side note, Dresden Files Accelerated Edition was developed by a member of Mythweavers, Chi. Kinsei has modified the plot of the original Fate Extra to focus on masters, who are the players, and servants, which are also the players, but a separate character, and are also heroic spirits that do the master's bidding. The actual plot of this game will be a tournament in which in which masters compete to earn the Holy Grail, which is a single wish to be fulfilled regardless of its contents. Fate Extra Lunatics game is a hybrid game, and Kinsei has decided that the character sheets will be hosted on Mythweavers, and actual gameplay will take place through Google Hangouts, so keep that in mind as you check out, check out the game. The application process for Fate Extra Lunatics game closes on August 17th, so be sure to get those applications in swiftly. As a side note, I have played with Kinsei before, and they are probably one of my favorite people to play with on Mythweavers. So the opportunity to play in a sort of face-to-face game with them would be absolutely awesome. And I'll concur with that. All right, and now it is time for everybody's favorite Moment of the evening, the question and answer session. So, you may ask us anything you'd like, be it about Mythweavers, um, about anything we've talked about this evening. You can ask us about previous topics we've covered in past episodes. You can ask us about new topics that we might talk about in the future. Anything you want. So bring on the questions. All right, Mick the Rogue wants to know, will this silence be edited out? And yes, the recorded version, I will edit out as much silence as I possibly can um, while still keeping it from being a giant mash of words. He also edits out all of his ums. But not ours, because that's how he rolls. I grab most of them. So Rising Zen asks, Name an animal to turn into a post-apocalyptic mutant. This has nothing to do with his Savage Worlds Fallout game in 40 minutes. Uh, Rising Zen, uh, would you like a list of all the Savage Worlds mutant animals that we made for the After the Bomb game I'm running in Savage Worlds? Would that help? That is a very enthusiastic yes from Rising Zen. And now I get to run through my, uh, you know, files. So that'll be fun. Mick the Rogue asks, will this question be edited out? I mean, probably not. I mean, he did kind of just read it, so... Well, and if you are going to make a post-apocalyptic mutant animal, it's hard to go wrong with the humble dog. The dog has been a companion of humanity for eons, and it's only logical that they would also be uplifted or otherwise uh, mutated to play alongside humanity. Kimmy, we are not a computer. You can't trip us up with a weird logic question. Tiffany Corda says, Post-apocalyptic grok wandering the atomic wasteland. I could see Grok being potentially future-shifted. I don't see why not. Mm, Grok do well. Grok wonder Laceland. Grok have been done. Smash mini dwarf. Mini dwarf. Very bad mutant. (laughs) Alright, Mick the Rogue has a serious question, which is extremely good. I love this question. How do you deal with newbie DMs and resist the urge to correct them or think, I could do this better? Alright, I would argue... In limited circumstances, that urge is good because we all become DMs because in some part we think, oh, I could do something good or I could tell this story better 
or I would like to tell a story. It only really becomes a problem if this movie DM is disrupting other games. But I think in limited editions and limited quotas, that's actually not a terrible thing. But it's because it means you're excited about the game, you're excited about something you think you can do well. So on Mythweavers, we have the awesome ability to have multiple GMs for a single game. So it's not out of the question to approach that person and ask them, hey, I have a couple suggestions. Would you mind hearing them out? Or would you mind if I stepped in, if I joined you as a co-DM and helped you run this game? And then maybe we can talk about some changes or modifications or improvements that I think might be beneficial for the game. And absolutely, you don't want to step on any toes while you're doing that. So you want to, you want to keep it respectful and say, Hey, this is mainly in the interest of improving your game so you can have the best possible game. Um, I don't know anyone on Mythweavers that wouldn't at least consider suggestions to help make their game better. Some of the best suggestions I've ever gotten have been people who are actually completely new to role playing. They have a really nice way of looking at the game that us veterans don't have. So it's kind of worth listening to those people. Tiffany Carter does point out that the trick is not to undermine the existing DM, especially with rules. Yeah, definitely. You don't want to go in and say, hey, if we homebrew this this way, then things will go better. Um, generally, people pick the rule set that they're using for a specific reason. Any thoughts, Colin? Not many that you guys haven't already covered. All right, we'll let Colin take the next question. So send us a question. That's cold-hearted. <laughs> you know now they're plotting. That's what they're best at. Is I'm not answering anything the unspeakable asks. But what if it's a really good question? Hey, Colin, what's your favorite caliber? That's a difficult one, actually. Um, I would go with, right now, 308 Winchester, I think. Oh, a good choice. It helps that right now the bullets are pretty much free for loading because, well, we make them. All right, the unspeakable wants to know, Colin, how much did you spend on the Stars Without Number Kickstarter? Of course he wants to know because I wouldn't tell any of them. <laughs> All right, well, on a more serious question, Colin, what is your what are you most excited for for the Stars Without Number Kickstarter? I think the Universal Omnibus. And for those of you that don't know, the Universal Omnibus is a compilation of every supplement ever printed for Stars Without Number in one gigantic book. And it's backwards, the revised edition is backwards compatible with it. It's the perfect way to use to smack certain people uh, with the name The Unspeakable upside the head. <laughs> Six pounds. All right, we have time for just a couple more questions. So Mick the Rogue asks, do you think we're at a point where it makes sense to have additional rules systems or to just fit your concept into an existing system? I think I've, I can't help but feel like the rules systems are so numerous and so diverse that you can make any idea fit almost any system. So I know there are people out there still developing new systems, but I can't help but wonder why. And that's my own personal opinion. Well, I think every new system also brings with it ideas for existing systems that can be kind of added. I think adding new systems is overall a good, even if it all it really does is add more interest to an existing system. Although that being said, 
I do find myself using the same three or four systems over and over these days. So, you know, what do yeah, I know? So let me ask Colin, because I know Colin is working on a system of his own. How does he feel about the state of how many systems there are out there? Well, it's nice having the ability to look at existing stuff and go, oh, you know, that's kind of a good way to approach things as opposed to, you know, banging your head on the desk for three weeks trying to figure out a mechanic with no similar references. But, I mean, as far as new systems, there's always some twist that can be put on things that some people might like. There's always... You know, something slightly different or creative you could do that hasn't necessarily been handled that way before. So I think it's good for people to keep writing new systems, especially ones that are more modular. I'll go back to my writing background for that, and that is your idea is not new, but your perspective is. And I think that's what ultimately makes a system unique. So you can come up with something that already exists, but the way you go about handling that thing is going to be completely different from what is already out there. So no matter what you do, it's going to be unique and interesting because it's yours and not someone else's. All right, and we have time for just one or two more questions. So Landed wants to know, how do you feel about supplements for existing systems? And my current favorite system right now is D&D 5th edition and I wish it had the supplements that 3.5 did because I think the system is so well done that all it needs right now is for those supplements to make it have the depth that 3.5 had. Once we get to that point I'll be happy. So I love supplements. Oh, I, I so concur. Yeah, I love 5e, and I really wish it had a lot more player supplements as well. I mean, I think it depends, too, on if it's a supplement because supplements make money or if there is quality to actually add in. Sure, I think 3.5 eventually got to the point where they were just printing supplements for the sake of printing supplements. I was just going to say, near the end there, 3.5 supplements were the equivalent of... uh, Disney making straight-to-DVD movie sequels for all the popular movies. So I did just drop a link for Xenathar's Guide to Every- Everything. It is a new upcoming hardcover book from D&D that has a crap ton of new player options. So all these player options that were being previewed in Unearthed Arcana, they're all in that book, and it's pretty sexy. Ooh, I didn't know this existed, but now I am so excited. This looks so cool. I need it. Yeah, it's coming into November, right before Thanksgiving. So just in time for that Thanksgiving dungeon crawl. Ah, that's when my birthday is. That's perfect timing. All right, the Unspeakable asks, When Grok is wandering the wasteland, how loosely will he define dwarf? Well, considering Grok is about eight feet tall, I think basically everyone is a dwarf compared to him. So he doesn't discriminate. That was a great guess on my part. Not true. Dwarf be anyone under four feet. No, five feet. Wait, how big five feet? Yes, dwarf anything shorter than Grok. (laughs) All right, and we have time for just one more question before we move on to the end of the show. 
All right, we'll answer this question. What system do you guys really want to run that you haven't gotten to take on Mythweavers? Um, I'm going to go with Iron Kingdoms. It's been a really long time since I've actually played that system or run it, and I would love to do so again at some point. Planet Mercenary. I'm just really having trouble figuring out how to adapt combat turn order to play by post. I'd really like to get a leverage game to really stick. That'd be fun. I love leverage so much. That would be so much fun. All right. Before we wrap up for the evening, I would just like to take a moment to remind everyone that Weaving Myths officially has a Patreon. We have several tiers of rewards, ranging from us taking your topic suggestions more seriously than non-patrons, all the way up to receiving a free copy of my latest novel. Additionally, when we reach certain monthly goals, we'll be putting out extra content that is exclusive to patrons. Contributions start at as little as $1 per month, so it doesn't take much at all to show your support for the show. The patrons over at Patreon help make this podcast possible, so if you haven't already, I'd encourage you all to check it out at patreon.com slash mythweavers. And that link will, of course, be available in the relevant link section of the forum post after the show. Finally, I'd like to give a huge shout-out to our very first Patreon patron, Tiffany Corda. Many, many, many thanks to them for their contribution and for helping us to make myth weaving myths possible. One last thing I should note, weaving myths is, always has been, and will always continue to be free. Full episodes are always uploaded to SoundCloud within two days of the episode being recorded, and all normal episodes will always be available for download or streaming free of charge. So, thank you everybody so much for joining us today. It's been a blast, and we appreciate all of the comments and questions from the text chat, as always. I'm Nathan, and I've been joined by the magnificent Colin. Goodbye, everyone. And Ruben. Have a lovely evening. Thanks for listening, and keep on weaving those myths.